Gracious God, I thank you for the opportunity to get together. I pray, O oh God, that you would allow Gil and myself to be instruments, as broken instruments as we are, but instruments nonetheless, to become, O oh God, vehicles or instruments of your uh, gospel message. And that happens, O oh God, only through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us, rose from the dead, and is now seated at the left hand of God the Father Almighty, right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to review where we were last week, and we'll get to that, but uh, let's talk first about these questions. Um, the first question that was posed, does Satan know in advance what we are going to do? Does he have foresight and foreknowledge? The second question was how exactly does Satan manipulate us? Is it through our hearts? Is it through our intellect? Uh, John's going to handle that one, and I'm going to handle the first one to the best of my ability. First question is, does Satan know in advance what we will do and how we will react? You hear about screw tape, you hear about wormwood, try this, try that. Uh, put this thought into his head, put that thought into his head. Make sure he doesn't think about this. Uh, instead, there's a lot of redirecting of thoughts. So the question is, does Satan have foreknowledge? Um, how many knows? If, if you think he does not know the future, raise your hand. Okay. If you think he is able to some extent to forecast the future, raise your hand. Okay, all right. Well, um, it looks like the nose have it. Uh, and I will tell you. Uh, all right, that's the answer to the question. Yeah, let's move so, on to the next one. So let's go. Um, <laughs> But if you look at Job, uh, Job gives us a fascinating picture of Satan, the workings of Satan, how Satan is limited both in terms of time and in terms of intellect. So you have this colloquy between Satan and God, and we're told that Satan is moving back and forth between heaven and the earth, uh, wandering to and fro, I think is how King James puts it. And it says, and then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. So Satan is engaging in a little bit of prophecy there, getting ready to say what would happen. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. It's clear to me from this passage and from others that Satan does not know for sure what will work with Job. What barbs, what snares, what attacks will work and what will not. Uh, he knows how he thinks Job's story is going to turn out. But Satan does not have foreknowledge or certainty of what Job will do. And I think this is so, and I think it must be so, because Satan, like us, is a created being. Uh, God created him, he created you, he created me, he created time itself. Uh, and we are all uh, fixed in time. But who is not fixed in time? And that's God. 
God exists apart from time. So he has the benefit of seeing past, present, future all at once. But Satan, like us, lives on a more linear continuum, uh, can only remember the past, can only look forward to the future. Uh, he is as time-bound as we are. So I do not uh, think that he knows what is going to happen ahead of time. I think that's knowledge that God reserves to himself. John, how about question two? How does Satan manipulate us? Are there intellectual buttons that he pushes or other buttons that oh, he yeah. pushes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I truly believe that there are intellectual buttons. I mean, my wife, when she was a teenager, and, and still this happens now today still, is um, when she hears a wonderful quote someone says or something that uh, uh, she has read or something, she'll write it in the, bi the flap of her Bible. And over the years, her Bible is growing up. They're just full of some wonderful insights. And you know what I just thought of? None of them are from me. I'm just saying, maybe we got to have a talk about that. I don't know. But one of the things that she has written in there is that the emotions are the doorway for Satan into your heart. Your emotions. And, and what drives you is either your anger or your jealousy or your envy, or your anger, I think I said anger, uh, all those things become footholds, if you will, uh, for uh, Satan to get into your life. Now, the gospel writers and also the New Testament writers understood this. They understood this because this is why John writes in one of his letters, his first letter, little children, you are from God. You have overcome them, those who are against us. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. It's just a reminder. Even when this happens, even though we, if we can recognize it, it is to get us back to ground zero of our faith. And that is the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. So I think the way that Satan manipulates us is like the carrot is like something out there is like, take your eyes from a broad view, a wide perspective, and kind of zero in on something into the future that you deserve, that is yours. You have a right to this. And the process and the trajectory of us getting from here to there is what Satan just delights over. Because it's not necessarily the thing it's the process of you getting that thing, who you will step on, who you will push to the sides to get that. So those, I hope, answer our questions. I don't want to spend too much time in that. Is that okay? Yeah, one thing I would add, too, is I think really the first picture in Scripture that we have of Satan is the most telling. And he is talking to Eve. He's at the tree. And he is, did you hear what you heard? Did God say what he said. He didn't really say that. And he sows that seed of doubt, interestingly enough, about the clear and explicit word of God. That's where Satan starts. But then it moves along very quickly to appealing to pride. Well, God doesn't want you to be like him. Uh, and that's why he's done this. And you can sort of follow the sequence of how Satan gets into our heads. Um, I would just, one, one scripture uh, that comes to mind, I won't quote it here, but it's one that Becky Averett and I talked about on Friday, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, the whole armor of God. Uh, others before us have dealt with this exact problem, uh, and you will note that the ultimate 
armor, the ultimate tool or, or weapon fashioned against Satan is what is called um, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Uh, and so Satan begins his history with us by questioning that word. It's incumbent upon us to know what that word is so that we know if what he's saying is correct or is not correct and can push back. So hopefully that covers it. Yeah. So All right. you ready to move along to I, chapter 18? Yeah. And I forget, forgive me because I know you had this worked out that we were supposed to do the review first. Yeah. I had it right here. We, I, we jumped into the questions. I'm, I'm, um, You're okay, right? I'm, I'm, right? I'm okay. All and, right. Uh, uh, I will cover kind of where we left off last week. I know that not everybody comes every week. Not everyone listens to podcasts. Not everyone really is comfortable with podcasts. But uh, I think it's helpful to start kind of where we left off. So last week, the patient had become aware of his precarious position uh, with respect to his very sophisticated friends. He had repented. He had rededicated himself anew to growing and maturing as a Christian. Uh, when chapter 4 opened last week, the demons are conferring about how on earth to right this ship. This is simply awful. Repentance? I mean, my word, what could be worse? Uh, and uh, his repentance will put him even more securely in the enemy's camp, uh, we're told. The enemy, of course, being God. So... There, there, there's a dialogue going on here about how to get the patient pointed back in the right direction, which is as far from God as possible. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase just to fast forward us to where we need to be. In letter four, good old Uncle Screwtape suggests first, exploit the patient's pride. Uh, pride, you may recall, is what C.S. Lewis called in Mere Christianity the great sin. It's the foundational sin. It's the first sin seen in Scripture at Eden where uh, uh, Eve and Adam ultimately succumb to that, that invitation from the devil. And they, what, what the, the bait that's in the trap is wanting to be like God, wanting to have knowledge of good and evil the way God has. So pride is wanting to be in charge of things that God has reserved to himself, wanting to play God by defining what is sin, what is not sin, wanting to be equal in some sense to God, um, and that's the first temptation that uh, they, they think about using because we're all so vulnerable to it. And it's the foundational sin. It's what turned an angel of light in heaven uh, into the devil of hell himself, the father of lies, is what C.S. Lewis tells us in Mere Christianity. So that's what chapter 14 focused on was pride. And um, we learn that we have the capacity to be prideful about anything, anything and everything, even our own humility. We can be proud of that. Our piety, our faith, we can be proud of that. Uh, it's very easy. And uh, Screwtape points out, you know, that that's, that's how you can in, in instantly transform someone away from a moment of humility into a moment of pride. Uh, just get them thinking about how humble they are, and they'll be very proud of their humility. Uh, the antidote to pride is humility, and there are several steps, practical steps, that are recommended uh, that you can glean from the text that we kind of talked about. One is we have to be intensely and acutely aware uh, of how close pride always is at hand, how close it is to the door. And being aware helps us guard against it. Uh, and then you have to think about what the goal is. And the goal is to open our hearts to God, asking him to kill what C.S. Lewis calls our animal self. 
uh, so that we can get to a point where we can do something really, really outstanding uh, and rejoice in it neither more nor less than if someone else had done it, uh, the same thing. Bottom line, we should be getting to that point that Christ told us to get to when he tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if we can love our neighbors as ourselves, we can love ourselves as we should love our neighbors. Uh, chapter 15, they say, well, you know, if pride doesn't work, let's try anxiety. And uh, two very fertile grounds for sin. Um, what are humans anxious about? There's a discussion in chapter 15 about time, uh, which is kind of where we begin our question and answer, past, present, future. Uh, humans are most anxious about the future, if you remember from last time. The present is not something many of us worry too much about. God is eternal, and the present is where uh, we touch eternity most closely and most directly. Screwtape suggests that Wormwood get his patient fixated on the future. Screwtape reminds Wormwood of a number of things, but that almost all vices are rooted somehow in the future. Uh, as he puts it, and this is at the bottom of page 76, gratitude looks to the past and love to the present, fear, avarice, lust, and ambition all look ahead. So that is how chapter 15 unfolds, dwelling on the future without counting the blessings of the present and the past. Uh, and it's very, very fertile ground for Satan. John closed out last week with probably the best antidote in Scripture for dealing with anxiety, and that's to remember that anxiety itself is a sin. Why do I say that? We're told in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer. Some of you know it better than I do. Uh, and thanksgiving. Make your requests be known unto God. Thanksgiving is the key part of, of dealing with anxiety, I think. Remembering, gee, I've been here before. God's had me here before. He's been my hope in ages past. He's my hope for years to come, and he'll always be there. So I think that's kind of a, a fast forward through the last two chapters and um, ready to Yeah, end it so off. in uh, letter 18, this is what we got. Letter 18, we have this conversation between two philosophies. I was never very good at philosophy. These are philosophies are standards of ways that people approach certain things or certain problems or life. There's the philosophy of hell and there's a philosophy of heaven. Now, um, Screwtape is writing to Wormwood and he's saying that this philosophy of hell uh, rests upon the all-encompassing standard that everybody regards as true, and that is this, that no thing, no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. Everybody believes that. Everybody believes that that is true. From uh, Screwtape to Wormwood to the patient is this. Convince them that my good is my good and your good is your good. What another one gains, another one loses. It's a zero-sum game, Screwtape says. If you're up, I'm down. If I'm, uh, if I'm up, you're down. It's kind of like even Steven. You're all, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to find that level of equilibrium. And no two things, as we said earlier, can occupy the same space at the same time. If another uh, object or person wants to take another space, what's in that has to be pushed aside, has to be thrust out, or it has to be consumed. This is the philosophy of hell. This is what hell uh, believes. In other words, 
To be, Screwtape says, means at its most basic level to be in competition. If you exist, you're in a competition. If you breathe, you're in competition. Competition is in marriages. Competitions in relationships. Competitions are in jobs. Competitions are within ourselves as we triage what we should do. As we kind of decide what is the best way to do something or go from there, right? This is, um, this is the philosophy of, of, uh, of hell. Now, the philosophy of heaven is a little bit different. In fact, it's completely different. It is a philosophy that's based on a contradiction of the axiom, if you will, the thing that we all regard as true. And this is the good of oneself is to be the good of someone else. The good of somebody, of one, is to be the good of another. And this is what God calls love. This is how Screwtape writes it. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. And he's writing sarcastic, tongue-in-cheek. He doesn't understand how God thinks this way. The good of oneself is to be good of the other. This impossibility he calls love, the enemy, God. And this same monotonous panacea can be detected under all he does and even all he is or claims to be. See, the way that Screwtape understands it, in fact, if we remember from our Sunday school classes, the way that the Bible preaches and teaches about this is that God is love and that everything about God revolves around this love. It is the love that God has that convinced him to offer his son, Jesus Christ. It is the love of God who, in a very intentional and deliberate way, it's not that we, he was caught off guard, it's not that someone manipulated him, reached out to us so that we could reach back to him. It is the love of God that set up this scenario that, uh, that we can reach God. We can have a relationship with God. Because remember this, the big difference between Christianity and all other world religions is this. All world religions see themselves as reaching God. What can I do to reach God? Christianity is us responding to God. Hey, we're not the first speaker when it comes to Christianity. We're a second speaker. In other words, you don't pray to God to get God's attention. You pray to God because God has said to you, I love you. And because God has said, I love you, then you can respond to God. Prayer is always a response. If you see that big picture, prayer is always a response. So if you sum this up, these two philosophies, Satan wants to divide through competition and God wants to unite through love. Two, diametrically opposing uh, philosophies, and yet so very true. Understanding how hell works and hell wants to reach and demolish and tear you down gives us a little bit of understanding when it comes to how do we recognize these things. So I was trying to think of an analogy of this. And here's the analogy. I want you to imagine that there is a boat. And um, this half of the room here 
are all rowing this boat, and this half of the room is also in a boat, and you are all rowing. Now, the philosophy of hell would be very similar to this side of the room, rowing in different directions at different times and at different, in different ways. Because each one, the philosophy of hell has this idea that we are going to put competition. We want the, the destination not to be what one person says. It is what you want as an individual. And so you have in the passengers of this boat fighting for space, fighting to be uh, in charge, fighting to be, have the resources. In, in, in the, uh, the, the boat that is similar to the philosophy of hell would be willing to push other people out of the boat if it means they get more for themselves. And as you sit and watch this happen, you would see this boat as working in a very chaotic way, constantly tipping over and trying to get back in and causing harm to the others. Now, the opposite side, if there's the second boat that's following this analogy of the, um, of the uh, philosophy of heaven, it would be a more harmonious one. They're all working together. You all remember, you ever see a rowing, machine, uh, rowing team and, and, and they're all one person up front saying now, now, or pull, or row. I don't know what they do. They sit in those really small skinny boats and, and they all, but they're all, they're all going in the one place, one time. They're all working together. They realize that they each have their own role in, in this boat. It's not their role to get to their destination, but the, the, the corpus, the group, we need to get to this one spot. They work together. They communicate and they stay on course. So the philosophy of hell promotes selfishness outside of this boat, promotes selfishness, promotes chaos. And the philosophy of heaven would be centering around this idea of promoting cooperation and selflessness. Now, this is not new to C.S. Lewis, this idea. Even though you will not find these words, philosophy of heaven or philosophy of hell in the early church fathers, they actually speak about this same kind of concept. So if you go back to Augustine, Augustine uh, writes in um, uh, the city of God and the Christian doctrine, he writes this, of all that has been said since we entered in upon this discussion about things is this sum, that we should clearly understand that the fulfillment and the end of the law and of the Holy Scripture is the love of an object which is to be enjoyed and the love of an object which can enjoy that, that, which can enjoy that others in fellowship with ourselves. It's to see outside yourself, to see something that is bigger than ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his um, sermons entitled uh, The Mind of Christ, says this, The spirit of the world, the spirit of the world is to live for oneself. But the spirit of Christ is to live for others. To live for oneself is death, but to live for others is life. It's the same concept. They might not use philosophy of heaven or uh, philosophy of hell competition or philosophy of heaven as, um, as to be in uh, centered around love, but you can see that happening. You can see this idea of, a, uh, of their Christian worldview, of how they actually see the worldview around them. And when Jesus was speaking to his disciples in the upper room, 
This is the farewell discourse. And many of you all know this. Many of you, this is about three or four chapters where Jesus, knowing that his time has come to an end, he gets to a point in his ministry where he needs to kind of double down to make sure his disciples understand exactly what is he has said, what is important. They're not going to be talking about March Madness here. They're not talking about uh, the sports scores or weather. This is where Jesus is going to zero in to those important things. And this is one of the things that he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. In this one commandment, the disciples are seeing some, both at the same time, joy and fear. Joy, because Jesus has given them a new commandment, which means this is going to usurp all the other 660-some-odd different commands and laws of the Mosaic Law. Oh, you mean I don't have to worry about lying? You mean I don't have to worry about walking on working on the Sabbath or something like that? And then they finally realize that if they love, they're not going to lie. If they love... They're going to actually live into the law. So what Jesus is telling them and maybe what Spurgeon and what Lewis is referring to here is this Christian worldview that sees overarching the guiding force behind this is God's love for us. God's love for us. You could say um, it this way. See what love the Father has given to us. I love this, 1 John 3, 1. That we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. See the extravagant love of God. All right, you want to know what the extravagant love of God? You mean he answered all my prayers? No. Do you mean that he is making my, um, answering my prayers in the time frame, in the way that I want? Uh Uh-uh. Does it mean that there is no pain? No. The extravagant love of God is that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. Many of you have children. We have three. I know for a fact that when I was a child, I wanted what I wanted at the time that I wanted. And I never really understood why my parents were so mean and so selfish and try to make this everything a teaching moment, right? Now as a parent, what I want my children to know now is that my love is not based on what I give them. What I want them to know is that they are mine and I am theirs. And that's difficult. That's difficult. It's difficult also for the Christian. So the philosophy of heaven centered around this idea of living into the love of God, which is we love because he first loved us. That's our worldview. That is what screw tape is telling the wormwood to cancel out. Now, letter 19. And letter 19 um, and letter 18 uh, John and I decided are not standalone chapters. Uh, last week we had a chapter that dealt with pride. Uh, we had another that dealt with anxiety. And either chapter could be read and it could be understood largely without reference to the other. 
uh, not so this week. Uh, 18 and 19 really are like opposite sides of the same coin. Uh, and you can't spend it, can't buy a Coke, unless you have a coin that's got two sides on it, uh, at least where I'm from. So uh, actually you need several coins to do that now. But um, the bottom line that you start to see developed in chapter 19 is Screwtape's reaction to this realization of what John is saying. Uh, and he just can't get his head wrapped around it at all. Uh, you see that fleshed out very fully in chapter 19. Screwtape simply cannot believe in the real possibility of disinterested love because this would contradict the first principle uh, in the philosophy of hell. Uh, if you believe in the philosophy of hell, if you're all in on the uh, philosophy of hell, if you're a true believer, uh, then the idea and the possibility of, of disinterested love just seems like a contradiction in terms. So to say that God could love, that God is love, is heretical in the upside-down, mirror-image, topsy-turvy, reverse imagery of the philosophy of hell. Uh, because hell rejects the very idea of love. Uh, it is a logical impossibility. Chapter 19 begins with Screwtape awakening to the possibility that he has committed this heresy uh, uh, and even conceding the very possibility that love is real is heretical. So let's look at uh, page 99. And um, this is, uh, this chapter also kind of reminds me that this is a work of fiction because there's a lot of imaginative uh, work going on here by Lewis. But here, um, uh, Uncle Screwtape says, the truth is I slip by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy really loves the hearing, humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to find out that real motive. And again, you have the two philosophies just going head on. They're colliding at this point. And so uh, the demons decide that there must be an ulterior motive because surely no one could engage in this thing called love. Um, Satan was simply incapable of grasping this or understanding what could motivate God to do such a thing. Um, put another way, uh, I was looking for some examples too. At, at my house, we like to watch Lost in Space. And as the robot said to Will Robinson, come on now. It does, it does not compute, oh. okay? Over and over again. Some of you young folks are going to have to Google that. I see some I thought it was danger, logs. Will Robinson, danger. Well, also, it does not oh, compute, no. right? Yes. Okay. All right, I'm looking at some <laughs> of my resident lost in space experts over there. But at any rate, it just makes no sense. It flies in the face of everything, uh, the entire worldview of hell. Um, much of this chapter is given over uh, to searching by screw tape of what God's ulterior motives are. If... Uh, 
Uh, he, he can't really believe this. So what's really driving him? Uh, that's what's going on here. Uh, and note, this is kind of interesting because, and I would urge you to reread this chapter because it sort of gives you some glimpses into Satan and just the mechanics of hell. Uh, just as Satan is limited by time, as we started out by talking today, he's also constrained by the limits of his imagination. Uh, uh, he just cannot follow along on this path uh, that God has taken him along or that God wanted him to go along on. Uh, screw tape even raises the p possibility, which I find interesting, uh, and this is really a, a whole bunch of questions in and of itself, that if a demon could ever understand what love is, if he could even conceive of such a thing as love, he would cease to be a demon and he would return to heaven or could return to heaven. So uh, love is a very powerful force uh, that we're looking at as it's being described here. Uh, so we understand the philosophy of hell. Uh, we understand that it is wholly incompatible with love. So what on earth is a demon to do in this situation? Screwtape counsels young Wormwood, his protege, to keep his eyes on the ball. Um, slide three. Um, bottom of page 101, nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind in given circumstances to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. That's all that counts. It's, it's in this zero-sum mentality uh, that characterizes the philosophy of hell. Um, and then they go on to decide that the best approach uh, is depends on the nature of the human himself. Um, uh, if, if he's the, the sort who considers himself somewhat cynical and worldly-wise, uh, convince him that he's too pure for love. He's too pure for such a trifling thing as love. Make him hard, make him cynical, uh, alienate him from his fellow man, and ultimately from God himself. So that's one approach. Uh, that screwed tape counsels. Also, another alternative is if the patient is the gullible, credulous sort who reasons with his emotions, uh, uh, trick him into an unrealistic view of love, make him have all kinds of nonsensical expectations of love, uh, make him read romance novels. Uh, that's, that's one thing that is suggested. So convince him that love solves all problems uh, and that ultimately it can be used to justify all sorts of destructive behavior, including self-destructive behavior. They then lead from that into the subject of marriage, and that's really where this winds up. Um, marriage, uh, in the cynical worldview of the demons, can be good or it can be bad. Um, it can point you more toward God or away from God. And you're going to see the rest of the book, some of the uh, coming up chapters, oncoming chap upcoming chapters, uh, uh, pointing us in that direction. Um, the chapter ends by focusing on that euphoria that we call falling in love. And the demons take the view that it is not good or it is bad. Uh, again, a very cynical worldview that you see. I think most Christians would agree that when you fall in love with the right person, that's great. Uh, it's wonderful. But in the demon's worldview, that's not possible. Uh, in the demon's worldview, falling in love is basically just raw material. It's all what you do with it. So uh, it can be used to point someone 
toward doing something that is stupid, destructive of others, ultimately self-destructive and destructive of one's relationship with God, uh, or it can be used to put one uh, on a path toward God. So you see a lot about how the philosophy of hell is applied, I think, in chapter 19. Chapter 18 sort of unfolds the philosophy of hell. Chapter 19, by contrasting it with God and putting the two side by side, putting the philosophy of hell side by side with the philosophy of heaven, uh, gives us a good deal of insight into how the demons' minds work and the assumptions that they labor under. So, John? So, yeah, and what's interesting about this, the whole nature of God, you think about marriage, the two are supposed to become one flesh. Again, in the axiom of what the philosophy of hell is, no two things can occupy the same space. You see? You see how that is so contradictory of what God, or the Trinity, right? The, the idea of the Trinity, even of himself, is this, this sharing in this uh, equal uh, thing. So um, you're not going to be surprised. He mentioned it earlier, but it does all come back to pride, okay? If we can recognize pride, we can recognize the foothold that it gets, uh, that Satan has in our lives. And once again, we've shown this for the last couple weeks, but this particular one, I reread this week, and I thought it was just interesting that what C.S. Lewis is saying here is for pride is spiritual cancer. Okay, we get that, all right? It eats up the next two words, the very possibility. It doesn't eat up love. It doesn't eat up contentment or common sense. It eats up the very possibility. So pride creates an arena that love, contentment, and common sense cannot will not exist. So if we're going to take a step, then that step has to be centered around this idea of us taking one area, one relationship, one aspect of our lives and go to this, the Christian worldview of love, keeping an eye on that thing that can become a pothole, and that is pride. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we go from this place, I pray that you will take what is from you and, and um, weave it into our hearts. And what is not from you, we pray that you allow it to fall to the ground and shatter. We are so grateful, O oh God, that your love is expressed through your grafting us into your family. And that we have the ability to love because you have loved us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.